Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm your host. Uh, you know, the usual boilerplate. Uh, I've had kind of an off week, if I can be totally honest. Um, I don't know what caused it, and I don't, I don't usually talk about myself like this, so we'll be very brief here, but... Um, just to say thank you to a few of you out there, uh, maybe you don't even listen to the show, but let me express my gratitude in this forum as well as others. Uh, I, I don't place a lot of value on what I do, just to be perfectly honest. I do it because I enjoy it, and I know some of you enjoy it and whatnot, but I mean, that's this, that's, you know, coverage, that's the whole nine yards here. I don't think very well of it as a, not just my own work, which I am hypercritical of, but, you know, it's kind of like the whole thing. It just, I don't know. Maybe because I do it, I... I think this is true of anything you do, for, especially over a long enough period of time. Like you start looking at it and going, bleh. Uh, I mean, for a while, I've, I've worked retail. I was uh, both stocking and cashiering and whatnot, so I occasionally would catch flack for saying that I think you could take a, you couldn't take a chimpanzee um, because they're a little bit too too much energy. But if you get something that's a little bit more mellow, you get like an orangutan. It takes a lot. If you annoy an orangutan, you're in trouble. But as a general rule, they're kind of chill. Like you could train an orangutan to be a cashier, and that was my opinion of it. Having worked there, and you know, not feeling very good about myself and what I do and whatnot. And there's a few people who have reached out, apropos of almost nothing that I can determine. I don't. They haven't done anything different over the last couple of weeks. But just to express and to remind me of, much as I might have some degree of, like, I mean, disdain's too strong a word, but it'll convey the feeling for this, you know, be that, like, lower-level podcasting, which, you know, I, I like what I do, and I put my best foot forward, but I'm also aware of, you know, I'm, I'm not a big deal. The show's not a big deal. And my coverage threads and my reports, like, they're not big deals. You know, I don't know exactly how much traffic those draw, but it's not a it's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. And there's just a few people who have expressed gratitude um, for this. And it made me remember that what I do is, uh, it may not matter, right, in the kind of the grand scheme of things, because what matters is relatively small, uh, small number things, and, but there is value to it, so thank you, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I'm never going to get, you know, rich doing this. Not under any illusions here. 
but after uh, after kind of a rough week, um, to be on the receiving end of positivity like that is uh, was nice. So again, my sincere gratitude. So anything you all can do to help out the show is appreciated. Whatever your podcast platform of choice, like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, again, whatever's applicable. Um, share whatever your social media platform of choice happens to be. Let people know that the show exists. That's uh, always helpful. All right, on the agenda this evening, last night, UFC 289. Um... Overperformed mostly because the expectations were fairly low, and you know what? Credit to the crowd. Um, they were in uh, Vancouver. I still live near there, actually. Um, twice, because I lived in I lived right around Seattle for a period of time. Then I lived in Oregon for about five years, actually. I've been you know, I've never I've never been to Vancouver. Or I've never been to Canada actually. Now that I think about it, so I've been to that area. I, lo- I there's a lot about the Pacific Northwest that I I love. Uh, a lot of it actually, but uh, there's a lot that I don't. So you know, like any place else. But the crowd there, uh, the UFC hadn't been to Canada in four years. Like the last time they went, they were at the same venue, but it was 2019. Uh, so it's been a while, and the crowd, they were there for it. They were there for this event for the most part. Um, so they helped boost the perception of this by a pretty good chunk, I'm fairly sure. So give them credit where it's due, so we'll review that. This coming Saturday, UFC on ESPN 47. They have like 15 fights. Oy. It's uh, going to be a long one. But there's uh, there's some stuff to pay attention to, so we'll get you the full preview of that. Relatively slow news week. Uh, so we'll talk about some of the news that I've got listed here, and we'll see what else happens as we record, because that's kind of how we do here. So, All right, I think that's everything I have, so apologies for the slightly longer than normal preamble, but let's jump into the show. So UFC, UFC 289. Um, main event, Amanda Nunes. Uh, she defeats Irina Aldana via unanimous decision. A two fifty forty fours and a fifty forty three. I was I was fifty forty three or fifty forty two. I think forty three. I'm gonna double check my scorecard on this one, but I think it was fifty forty three. Um. All the way down. Yeah, I had 50-43. There were... Because I gave her a 10-8 in round 4 and round 5. There might have been an argument in the third. It's a tenuous one. What are the official scorecards? I'm just curious. uh, What the actual... Because we had the same three chuckleheads... From uh, from last week here, uh, Chris Lee, Mike Bell, and Sal D'Amato. Um, what do we got here? So round yeah, round five was a unanimous 10-8, and uh, 
And then round four uh, for Chris Lee was 10-8. So the, those three, those three managed to get it right. Um, so you know what? Good for them. Good for them getting it right. Doing your job appropriately for once. Uh, what do I think about this fight? This wasn't... I'll talk about what happened after the fight in a second. Let me talk about the fight itself first. Um, Aldana just... She didn't show up. Um, she landed one pretty decent right hand in the first. She was losing... Uh, she was losing that round. And ultimately did lose it. But she kind of pushed... Again, towards kind of kind of towards the end of the round, she gets pushed back against the fence, clinch breaks, and lands a right hand that got um, Nunez's attention. Didn't hurt her, uh, it didn't wobble her, but it definitely kind of reminded her that okay, I'm actually in a fight and I can't be reckless. But this fight was just uh, Nunez kind of. If she was at distance, it was kind of poking with front kicks and calf kicks. She got a bunch of takedowns. Some of them she didn't even really follow uh, Aldana to the ground. I was just tossed her down and went, nah, get up. Uh, anytime she kind of got a little bit into boxing range, she was able to land pretty well. Pretty decent clinch work. Nunez is just, a, to the shock of no one, like a really, really good fighter. And she was just better everywhere. And Aldana just never, never got going. I mean, this fight just, I mean, this is going to ruin Aldana's uh, stat line for a long time. Like, I believe coming into this, Aldana's average, average strikes landed per minute was uh, five something. And that's a lot. Like that—that's a lot of strikes. And then in this one, she like her average—I mean, average is not really the right word, but um, yeah, I want to say she came into this fight with the strikes landed per minute north of five, five point something. After that fight and including it, she dropped her average down to less than five. It's 4.86 now. I mean, her her stats in this one were kind of tragic. I mean, she only threw... She threw 159 total strikes, which over the course of five rounds is actually quite low. Uh... Her significant strikes were somewhat lower. She threw 143, only landed 41. I mean, just to understand the level of dominance here that we're talking for Amanda Nunes, Nunes landed 101 more significant strikes. Like, Nunes landed essentially as many significant strikes as Aldana threw. Like, that's... That's the level we're dealing with here. That's a huge disparity. Huge. Uh, 
Yeah, Aldana just... She never... She looked frozen. She looked utterly frozen. She kind of started to wake up a little bit, like in the 4th and 5th, a little. Unfortunately, her aggression just led to her getting beat more. Uh, and I think by the time we got to those rounds as well, Nunez was willing to wrestle a little bit more, use top control to ride things out, pass guard. I mean, she spent basically the whole fifth round on top, passing the mount repeatedly. Uh, yeah, this was this was one of the worst statistical performances of Aldana's entire career uh, by a pretty significant margin. Um, and again, she, in the course of this five-round fight, like, some of the fights where she stopped people, like, uh, both Yana Santos and Macy Chasson, like, she landed, both of those were 37, and she, again, she stopped both of those. She barely landed more strikes in this entire five rounds than she did in rounds that ended in, in fights that ended in the first. I mean, she's normally a fairly high output fighter, even in some losing efforts. I kind of thought she beat Raquel Pennington, but she just had nothing here. Uh, it was it was just bad. Like this, this is the kind of. This is the kind of non-starter performance that might stall out your entire career. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, she... I don't have anything against Aldana. I didn't pick her here, but I said she was a... Like, that she had a chance. Um, not the way she fought, she didn't. That was... I don't know if this was bad game planning... I'm hesitant to say that because she trains out of a pretty good camp. She trains out of um, Lobo MMA with uh, Alexa Grosso and a few other Mexican fighters. And if you watch when Grosso fought uh, Valentina Shevchenko, even though she was struggling before she got the finish, like Shev um, Grosso had a plan. Like There was a pretty clear plan. Here's some stuff we've observed. Here's the patterns we've built around it. We're going to fight off the side headlock throws. We're going to work on any time we get back exposure, we take it. There were, again, there was stuff she'd worked on to deal specifically with Shevchenko. Uh, Aldana here did not seem to have anything approximating an offensive game plan. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to yell at her corner too much about this. Um, partially because they were speaking Spanish and while we have the translator... This is one of those things that I'm always a little bit wary of because the translator, you know, bless them, they're doing the best they can. But sometimes there's nuance to what's being said that if you're translating in real time, gets a little bit lost. And that, again, that's the nature of translation, right? That's not a, that's an occupational hazard. So the fact that her corner was not giving her a lot of technical advice and was more trying to motivate her. Now, there might have been... Like, there might have been a technical game plan that she just couldn't follow for whatever reason. Um, or they had 
they had observations, they had things they'd worked on, but Aldana came out so flat that like there's no point. Um, this is one of the things that um, gets a little bit lost on occasion when uh, when commentary talks about the corner messaging, right? Because sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, corners get criticized. And look, I've criticized a few corners in my time. Sometimes I'd like to think fairly, but uh, you there's like you have to think about like the the hierarchy, right? Or or the pyramid. Uh, pyramid's maybe not the wrong thing. I, I tend to think of it more as kind of a continuum, personally, because the first thing, what's the first thing you have to do for a fighter if they're going to be in that kind of situation? What's the very first thing you got to do? I mean, like baseline. Look, they know enough to fight. Clearly, we've reached a high level. It's a world title fight. What's the what's like the the baseline thing you have to have from them and to help impart to them before you can deal with anything else? They have to be in the fight. They have to be motivated. They have to be mentally and emotionally engaged, and they have to be there. Right? You have to be in the moment, you have to be present, and you have to be motivated. You might, this is one of those weird things that if you've never, look, I've never had a professional fight. I've never had a, what I would call a serious amateur fight either. You know, I've, I've sparred. That's kind of the, that's kind of the extent of it. But even sparring, we've had, you've had these moments where it's like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. And I've been around some other people who have done more serious training and fighting than I have. And it's, I've talked with a few of them about it, and it's kind of the same thing. Like, you might think, I'm in a world title fight, someone's across the cage from me, and they're trying to kill me. In this case, it's Amanda Nunes, the greatest female fighter of all time. And what do you mean you need to motivate me? This is, the the situation itself is motivating Again, not as much as you might think. Like, if you go out there cold, and that's not just a physical thing. Like, if you go out there and you're mentally not there, if you're just kind of floating along, half doing what you've always done, not reading, not being engaged, like, the corner can give you the best technical advice in the world. Right? Like, let let me pick up something specifically for Amanda Nunes here. Like, okay, Nunes has started switching her stance. What do we do? The instant you see her switch, if you're both orthodox and she switches southpaw, left foot outside, double up the right hand. Instantly. A little... Look, let me warn you guys, if you take this and try to do it in sparring, if you're sparring someone who's very good, switching is a trap. Most of the time, again, especially if we're just talking like the people you might spar with, the switch is because something isn't going quite right. Now, that doesn't mean you're losing horribly, but I'm not feeling it. I'm going to switch. The best thing to do when someone's doing that is immediately attack. You have to be in the right distance, and you kind of have to be you have to be present. But first thing they do, oh, they're switching. Immediately. Just go. If you can catch a mid-switch with their feet in motion, better. Same thing, if they switch back, okay, they were southpaw, they went orthodox, you jab. Double jab right away, start pushing. Uh, again, that's 
That's generally sound advice. Now, I don't know that it would work every time against someone like Amanda Nunes, who's obviously an exceptionally high achiever. And, again, top-level people, very, very fluid stances, guys who are very fluid. I wouldn't actually consider Nunes all that fluid between stances. She's okay at a southpaw. I mean, she beat up Juliana Pena from there, but that's largely because as soon as Pena's jab couldn't just kind of be a somewhat disruptor, she just resorted to... Well, like drunken Weimar boxing, elbows out, charging forward, and just had nothing. Um, but Nunes is good when she settles into stances, but she doesn't have a lot of fluid switching, and that's like, that's not a criticism; it's an observation. Like that, fluid switching between stances has perks and it has downfalls because again, nothing nothing's perfect. So one of the things you do against a guy who switches a lot, again. Most important punch if you're dealing with open stance is the power hand. Someone switches open immediately, get good foot position, throw the right, throw the power hand. If you're dealing with someone who was open and they go closed, most important punch when you close stance, the jab. Cover the lead hand, jab and move forward. It's it's something to get you going if you're a little bit stuck. Or something else we can talk about with Nunes. I'm not knocking Nunes, I'm just like, but if you want to like some an example of good technical advice, um, you know, you're jab jabbing with her too much was kind of a problem. So switch up the timing a little bit and start poking the right over the top of the jab, you know, or something to deal with the front kick. There's a lot of ways you can deal with the front kick, but Nunes had a lot of success with that. Aldana's corner never gave her a lot of specifics to deal with a front kick. One, because presumably she's a good fighter. She knows how to deal with a front kick. But two, because that doesn't actually matter if you can't engage your fighter. If they're not engaged, nothing else matters anyway. And why why I refer to that as kind of a continuum, because you need the engaged fighter. Then you do the technical stuff. Sometimes very... Sometimes that's baseline, sometimes it's much more narrow. Sometimes it's, okay, we worked on a couple of different things in camp. Here's what's working now, let's focus on that. Okay, round and a half later, crap, that's not quite working. Look at what they're doing. Oh, here's how we adjust. And hopefully your fighter can adjust between rounds. It's a very difficult thing to do. But if you do this long enough, eventually you get back to, okay, I've given you all the advice I can. The The advice has been good, but... I need to motivate you again. And hope here's the thing, like hopefully that happens late into a fight. But if you never actually like her coach knows that she's not there, right? Like she's having a really off night. So the coach like I can give you can give them technical advice, it's utterly useless. Utterly useless. Like, okay, here's a better way to time your left hook versus something Amanda Nunes is doing. Here's, you know, maybe a footwork pattern that we've worked on that'll help you corral her a little bit instead of just circling. There's all these things that you can tell her, or any fighter, that might be brilliant technical advice, but if they're not in a position to act on it, you've just wasted your minute. You've affected nothing. And I think, I think Francisco, uh, Francisco Grasso, it's Alexa, um, Alexa's father. 
Again, he's coached a world champion at this point. Several other very good fighters have come through his gym. Like, he knows what he's doing. So the fact that he's spending time between rounds trying to get Aldana, like, essentially out of her own head about this, trying to motivate her, like, that speaks to where she was in the fight. And she just, again, she never got going. This was, this was probably, I think, yeah, this was the worst outing of Aldana's UFC run, certainly. Uh, just nothing was working here. And she never, she almost never got going. Um, There was a quote, like, she looked okay locked in during fight week, but by the time, she didn't quite look like Megan Anderson, if you'll remember, because um, I do. When they showed Megan Anderson uh, when she fought uh, Nunez, they sh do what they always do with fights, like they filmed their arrival. Dude, Anderson just walking into the building looked beat. I mean, she just... Uh, it, it's just something about, you know, the countenance. Just, she looked beat. And then the first time, you know, Nunez hit her, her eyes got big, like most... Not ev not literally every fighter that a woman that Amanda Nunez hits gets those big saucer eyes and suddenly falls apart. Most of them. Who didn't? Um, Shevchenko didn't just fall apart. Um, Pena didn't. To her eternal credit, like Pena, even both of their fights. Juliana Pena, however badly she got battered at times, she didn't. She didn't fall apart because she got hit really, really hard. I mean, plenty of people, Misha Tate has talked about this publicly. Like, the only people who have hit her as hard as Amanda Nunes did were rare occasions when she went full bore sparring with, like, grown men. Nunes has ludicrous power. Uh, and Aldana... Eh, it's like by the time Aldana was walking into the building, like she just didn't look. You know, there, there's, the look wasn't quite right, and some of the stuff during fight week, she looked locked in, looked okay. But like somebody asked her a question, like what are you gonna bring to Amanda Nunes? One of these kind of generic things, and her response was something to the effect of like I'm Mexican. And I get that she's, I mean one she is and. But if that's your response, like, maybe you just don't want to answer. And okay, you know, maybe you don't want to give away something you've seen. Like, that's fine. I'm just, never a I'm just never a big fan of those kinds of answers. I'm whatever nationality. I'm whatever physically. You know, I'm tall. I'm, I hit really hard. I, whatever. Like, there's a bunch of those that become default answers for some fighters, and I am never a fan of those being the big answers that are given. I'm just not. It can be part of an answer, but if that's, like, the answer, like, how how are you going to beat Amanda Nunes? Like, what are you going to bring to her that's different? Well, I'm Mexican. I mean, good for you, but <laughs> that ain't going to save you. And yeah, by the time by the time Aldana walked to the cage, like she did not, she looked like she didn't want to be there. There's just something you can tell it. You've seen it in fighters before if you watch enough. Like sometimes, like 
blocking out, they know. Like, they just know they're having an off night. Some of them are better at masking it than others, but... I mean, uh, let me give you an example. Somebody was pretty good at masking it, but on rewatch, you can see it's there. Um, when Jan Blahovich fought Glover Teixeira for the title, um, if you rewatch that, like, you can see Jan, he's not there. Like, something's off. And it cost him. cost him his title. And he said, I mean, to his like after the fact, he said, yeah, I woke up that morning in the hotel and knew I was off and knew it wasn't my day. Like, that happens. Uh, so Aldana, I don't know if it was a that day thing or some part of that week, but by the time they got into the cage, uh, nothing, just nothing. So Nunez retains the bantamweight title. This gives her her 11th win in title fights in the UFC, equaling Anderson Silva, still behind... People ahead of them. I think both. I think John Jones and uh, Demetrius Johnson are ahead of them. Because Johnson has 12 wins in UFC title fights. Jones has some stupidly high number. Um, but so Nunez equaled Anderson Silva. GSP might be ahead of that. He's somewhere in that list too. I forget exactly where, but some of that's neither here nor there. She equaled this record from Anderson Silva. Post-fight announces her retirement. She's the double champ. She's going to retire as double champion. Um, you know, her wife is pregnant with their second... Uh, I think it's another daughter. Second child, if they don't know the uh, gender. Uh, she and Nina had her daughter with her, and she's bought property in Brazil and is connecting with her family a little bit more. They've, She is ready to be done. And you know what? What can you say about it? She's 35. She's accomplished everything she's going to accomplish. Like, again, what else was she going to do? Beat Juliana Pena again? I mean, you could argue that a trilogy there wouldn't be wholly uncalled for. In fact, Pena was supposed to be in this fight before she busted her ribs. But, like, that second fight wasn't close. Uh, I mean, at all. <laughs> I don't know, so again, I don't know that it's... I don't know that it's really all that necessary. Uh, yeah, Nunes has... Um, I mean, she has the most consecutive wins in UFC women's history. Let's list off some of her accolades, if you don't mind. She has the most wins in UFC title fights amongst women, period, at 11. Most wins in women's bantamweight championship fights... Most bouts in UFC bantamweight and UFC women's bantamweight championship fights. First simultaneous champion in UFC women's history. First UFC fighter ever to defend titles in two divisions while holding both belts. She's got the fourth longest single UFC title reign of all time. Um, because I believe her featherweight title reign was 
Uh, something stupid. Yeah, like, like almost 2,000 days. Like 1981. Yeah, 1981, there's the number. The only guys with longer range than her are Demetrius Johnson, Jordan St. Pierre, and Anderson Silva. I mean... Yeah, she and Anderson Silva are tied for most title fight wins in UFC history. Uh, she's just, she's littered throughout, I mean, and let's also just take a look at some of the names on her resume, if you don't mind. Um, I mean, her, you may not remember this one, her Strike Force debut when she knocked the stuffing out of Julia Budd in 14 seconds. Uh, Julia Budd's still around, actually. Uh, she, she fights for PFL now. Uh, I mean... Oh, man, she did bad things to Raquel Pa'alui uh, before choking her out. Made her way to the UFC, beat Sheila Graff. Uh, excuse me, Gaff was supposed to be something a little bit. Uh, stopped Jermaine Durandamy. Lost to Katz and Gano. That was a tough one. Sent, dude, she stopped, she battered and brutalized Shayna Baszler. Uh, Baszler was a little over the hill at that point. A lot of injuries, a lot of physical issues had kind of piled up for her. But I believe she retired Baszler and sent her to professional wrestling uh, with some brutal leg kicks. Was that Baszler's last fight? If it wasn't, it was real close. I'm going to check. And she had one more after that. Um, two years later, she fought in a, a deep promotion, a deep jewels. But for all intents and purposes, Amanda Nunes retired her. Uh, she beat up Shayna McMahon, beat Shevchenko twice. Um, I picked against her when she fought Misha Tate for, uh, for UFC 200. I picked Tate in that fight. I felt very foolish after that. She ran over her. She beat Ronda Rousey, another one I picked wrong, actually. I can tell you why I picked that one wrong. And so I picked both of these, actually. In the case of Tate, I figured Nunes would have a lot of success early, but that Tate's durability would see her through, and then Nunes would fade as we got into rounds like four and five, and Tate would do would get something done in the end. Turns out, Tate couldn't deal with what Amanda was dishing. When it came to Rousey, it was a technical thing. Uh, if you look at some of the previous stuff from Nunes, she, falls, she would fall into clinches very easily. And that's a bad thing to do against Ronda. Now again, very, very wrong. Stops Ronda in less than a minute. Tough split decision with Shevchenko in their second fight. She just, she beat the crap out of Raquel Pennington. She knocked out Cyborg in 50 seconds. Stopped Holly Holm in the first round. Beat up Jermaine Durandamy. Poor Felicia Spencer had nothing for her. Utterly dominated Megan Anderson. Uh, avenged her other loss. She lost to Pena and then avenged it in, again, singularly dominant fashion. And here, beat up Aldana. Like, Aldana was ranked, I think, fifth coming into this. Like, she beat everybody, man. She beat everyone that division had to offer. Um, she is, hands down, the best female fighter the UFC's ever seen. I would argue the sport's ever seen. Uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. Like, because the UFC doesn't have a waiting period, They'll probably put her in next year unless she does something to piss them off. Which, you know, 
not out of the question, but assuming smooth sailing relationship-wise, easy Hall of Famer. Just easy, easy. Uh, as one of the guys who was a little bit slow to come around to just how darn good Amanda Nunes was, uh, let me just phrase it like this. Um, I'm going to crib a little bit from a few other people who've reminded me of some of these things. Nunes was never the first choice of the promotion. I don't I don't mean the UFC like actively tried to hold her back or anything, but I mean consider what how she came to the belt, right? You had kind of the the trio of Ronda Rousey, megastar, Holly Holm who got star power by brutally knocking out Ronda, and then Misha Tate who had a lot of a degree of fan support and he kind of built that up. Those three, like, that that title between those three, because Ronda had it forever, Holly took it, so Ronda had it forever, Holly took it from her, Misha took it from Holly, and there was a little bit of a, I know I said this, like, my assumption was we're going to play rock, paper, scissors here, because Misha Tate has almost nothing for Ronda Rousey. Like, Rousey's better. They just The way they match up, like, Ronda beats her every time, pretty much. But turns out getting knocked out brutally in front of one of the largest crowds the UFC's ever drawn does something to you. And, you know, Holly had a lot of success against Misha, but struggled to maintain it. And I thought, okay, maybe Holly gets it back. Nunes was kind of... Uh, she was on the... She was left on the outside of the public discussion. And... She forced her way into it, man. Like, she just kept winning. And doing so in pretty notable fashion to be like, hey, me. If you're anything approximating a meritocracy, and we know the UFC is not really, but anything approximating that, I'm next in line. Okay, fine. Here's your title shot. And she took that thing by the throat. You know, the... There was... Uh, you guys may not remember this. I don't know how long you've been watching. I remember the build to her fight with Ronda. And Nunes was used almost nowhere in the promotion of that. Um, in fact, all the promotional material for Ronda was of her dominance. They didn't talk about her losing the belt at all. Um, Ronda didn't do a lot of media leading up to that, which was... Um, it was just weird. It was just a weird thing. Like I don't begrudge a fighter not wanting to talk to the media, uh, especially MMA media in some respects. But it, again, it was just a little bit weird. I, Nunes was just um, an afterthought. This was not too long um, into the uh, UFC and ESPN deal. And there were people at ESPN just really happy to have Ronda back. And would like, there were stories coming out about people referring to Amanda Nunes as cannon fodder. And we're going to get this superstar in Ronda. She's going to have the belt back. She's going to be, and we'll be able to, you know, build content around her, basically. There's a reason that after Amanda Nunes got that stop and she looked at that crowd and the people and just put her finger to her lips and said, shush. Like, no, no. 
every single one of you. And again, I got that one horribly wrong in my prediction. I make, I eat that, I have to eat that crow, man. That was on me. I got that wrong. And she just, I mean, in pretty much consecutive fights, right? She bludgeons and submits Misha Tate, breaks her nose. Uh, she just steamrolls Ronda. Yeah, it was a couple of fights later before she fought Holly, but... Like, she took your... You know, okay, here's your two big stars, right? And just... Man, if you... <laughs> even the combined time of those fights, because Misha was 316 of the first, Rousey 48 seconds of the first. Between the two of them, they couldn't get out of the first round. Even in aggregate. Uh, and just made you, she forced you to, even if you were never a big fan, she, her excellence and her performance just perpetually demanded your respect. Even if you weren't a fan, you had to sit there and go, that's greatness. That is a great fighter on a great run. We might not ever see something like that again. Uh, so my hat's off to her. Hope she enjoys retirement. Uh, yeah, the UFC's featherweight division will almost. I think Dan, I think somebody asked Dana about it at the post-fight press, and he's like, "Yeah, it's going away." They kind of let Amanda hold on to two belts for ever, but like, they've literally never had rankings for the UFC women's featherweight division since. I mean, look, Cyborg got that belt. Um, well, hang on. Wasn't Jermaine Durandamy the first one, and then she got stripped because she wouldn't fight Cyborg? And then I think it was Cyborg and Holly Holm, and Cyborg won that, and then Nunes beat Cyborg. I think that was the order of things. But never had rankings. They've never really had a, anything approximating a division. They just... They just let Nunes hold it. And like, okay, occasionally you'll fight someone at 145 and whatever. And now that she's retired, that one will go away. Um, Juliana Pena was in attendance and, oh, dear. I've tried very, very hard lately to be, believe it or not, if you've listened to this show long enough, you might remember me when I was um, a lot you may think I'm critical now. When I used to be more critical, when I was, um, I hate to say angrier, because I'm not sure that's accurate, but maybe it was. I've tried real hard to be more charitable these days. But Juliana Pena, this fight week, because she was in attendance, and she did the, like, they did, because they will do the, um, you know, here's a couple of other UFC fighters, do a public Q&A with the fans. And some poor schmuck went up there and decided to try and get Valentina Shevchenko's number because she was there too. And just have some, what happened to dignity? Just as a minor aside, like what happened to dignity, people? Uh, but Pena just, uh she became, over the last 48 hours, probably one of the most insufferable characters in MMA. And that's a lot of ground to cover. But 
Yeah, she was up there um, talking about how Am she made Amanda Nunes relevant again because nu Nunes is not a draw. Amanda Nunes is never the biggest draw. That It's one thing to say, you know, she's not the biggest draw in the world. True, because there's truth there. But then, no, my lot, her loss to me made her relevant again. Well, not really. And then she dropped a couple of 10-8s on you. Uh, well, <laughs> beating you stupid. Um, she pointed to like some of the uh, the YouTube numbers because the UFC will release um, the embedded stuff or the countdown, and the the countdown numbers for Benil Daryush and Charles Oliveira for that segment, it, it did like tr uh, double or triple the numbers for Nunez and Aldana. It, there was a lot more interest in general in the co-main event than in the main event. Uh. But the notion that somehow if Juliana Pena were involved, this would be different is just, again, it's not true. It's comical. Then after the fight, you know, when Nunez announced her retirement, she just tweeted out, like, I beat you so badly where you had to retire. Like, no, she kind of cleaned your clock, lady. I saw that second fight, and it was not competitive. Uh... <laughs> But just, again, this span of like 48 hours, man, she turned into just one of those characters that, you know, and if she's playing up a gimmick, you know, fair play, uh, I'm a, I'm a fairly big believer in that. There's a lot of gimmickry in MMA that people don't like to acknowledge because it's a little close to professional wrestling. And for some reason, despite the significant overlap in fan interest between MMA and professional wrestling, nobody likes the assertion that they're that similar to each other. And this goes both ways, by the way. Because I cover both. I've seen both of these things. Like, I remember the people being a little bit annoyed when CM Punk debuted in, uh, in the UFC. And don't get me wrong, I was too. You're talking about a guy with zero athletic experience, zero competitive athletic experience, utilizing his celebrity and leveraging his name value to jump into a position he had no business being in. Like, yeah, that rubbed me the wrong way. He's not the only one that's done that, and they've all rubbed me the wrong way, but his did. But the kind of just like mixing of people, of those fan bases, because, again, there's a bunch of overlap there's a ton of market research to this point, but no one likes to no one likes to see them cross over. Like if you, there are plenty of people who enjoy both, but they want them separate, and I understand that. Like part of this, I think, with MMA, let me talk about the MMA side for just a minute here. There's still an inferiority complex with a chunk of MMA fans, and it's a little annoying. Like MMA fans out there who still, like, have one of these things, please listen to me, okay? Please listen to me. The UFC is not the underdog. They're not the little guy. They're a billion-dollar entity. They're a billion dollars in revenue. They're an almost... They're going to do, like, $400 million in profit this year, 2023, okay? You won. Not the little guy anymore. Not being persecuted. Not being stepped on or, or shunned or looked over. No. That's not it. 
The UFC is where it is. Not the little guys anymore. Stop pretending you are. That chip on your shoulder is not doing you any favors. But it exists still. And so again, I'm asking you don't. Please don't side with the promotion. Okay? That's again, billion dollar entity. They don't need your, you sticking up for them online makes you look stupid. Don't do it. But more importantly, I think, and again, because of some of the history of MMA and pro wrestling, and again, they're very intrinsically linked, more so than people like to admit. There's a lot of, we don't even want the appearance of the impropriety that professional wrestling would have in an MMA context. Because professional wrestling, and I'm not here to knock it, okay? What they do is very difficult. What they do can be very engaging. If you like pro wrestling, cool. There's not a judge, not judging you. But it's a work, and that's fine. Again, this is just a statement of fact. It's a work. MMA is, in theory, most of the time, not a work. And MMA fans just really don't want that association because they still feel like everyone's looking down at them for some reason. Please, please, stop this. Please stop this. It's not helping you. It's not helping anyone. Please stop. And on the pro wrestling side... (laughs) Um, they don't like the association because, one, MMA fights are not always exciting. Granted, look, if you like, again, I'm not here to knock professional wrestling as a genre, okay? Please understand what I'm about to say here. But they'll take a boring pro wrestling match over a boring fight because... A boring pro wrestling match usually still has some kind of narrative. There's, there's like something you can kind of follow, whereas a boring MMA fight, and there were there were a couple on this card. There were some last week. Like I'm the first to call out and say, "Boy, that fight sucked." It's just a waste. It just feels like a waste of time. And don't get me wrong. There's pro wrestling that feels like a waste of time too, but. There, there's a, there's something of a difference there that MMA, that pro wrestling fans would prefer, and I'm not here to knock anybody who does. So there's that, and then the other thing, and please, pro wrestling fans, don't get upset at me about this, because pro wrestling fans who don't like MMA prefer the, prefer the fantasy. They prefer to pretend that... I'm going to name a few people here. Please don't get upset if I name a wrestler you like. I'm calling out a physical type. Nothing more. They prefer to think that guys like Adam Cole or Rey Mysterio or... Oh, who's that other guy? Um, or Johnny Gargano. I'm naming a few of these NXT, former NXT guys, uh, and I'm not trying to pick on them. Um, or, you know, The Miz. They prefer to think, and li- they prefer to live in the fantasy world where these people are the cartoon characters, superheroes kind of thing that they pretend to be on screen. 
and okay. Again, this is not a value judgment here. If you like Adam Cole and what Adam Cole does, cool. I don't. Not a big fan of Adam Cole. Haven't been for a long time. Or um, like Seth Rollins. Let me give you. Let me give you that one. Like Seth is. Like Seth's a. I got issues with Seth. And they're kind of long-standing. But they would rather live in the fantasy world where, you know, five foot four Adam Cole. Uh, I think he is like five four actually. Like five. He's not a tall man. Who is able to succeed at a high level. Again, Rey Mysterio. I mean, I love, I love Rey. But, you know, they want to live in the fantasy world where Rey Mysterio can compete on a somewhat even playing field with men significantly larger than he is. And that's just, again, it's just fantasy. And that's okay. It's inherent to the genre. But they don't like it. People, fans who are like this, they really don't like it when you point out the difference in reality because you know, the honest ones will admit that it's fantasy and that's what they like. And I got no problem with that at all. Again, I like the fantasy of this here, uh, and it's not reality, and that's part of the appeal. Fair enough, man. But there, so there's these two sides that just really don't get along all that well. And it's weird, again, especially with the crossover. Especially with the crossover. I mean, Brock coming back and forth, being very successful at both of them. You know, Ronda's first run in the in WWE, um, dude, she was over like Rover. Uh, now, not quite so much, but. Uh, and, you know, th- there is just that kind of cross-pollination, but they don't like it. And it's, I don't know what they're going to do once um, once it's official, once the merger of WWE and UFC is official. That's going to be weird. That's going to be a weird little bit in time for both, both genres. So, uh, I rambled a little bit there, didn't I? But uh, the long and the short of that, uh, to get back to Amanda Nunes, you know, she, um, yeah, so she's retired, so retiring, wish her nothing but the best. Um, as for Aldana, man, yeah, that's, uh, this one's going to follow her for a little bit, I think. I'm not saying she can't get back to the title level. Um, I remember where I started there. Gimmickry on Juliana Pena. So what you do for the next minute, again, if Juliana Pena is kind of playing up a character, again, fair play, do what you have to do to make waves in an industry that does not care about you at all, for a promoter who does not care about you at all. I don't know if she'll be in a fight for the vacant belt. She might be. We might get Juliana Pena versus, like, Raquel Pennington. And... Yeesh. That's, uh, dude, women's bantamweight is not in a good spot. Again, I've been saying that for a while. That's not just because Nunez has left. Like, Amanda Nunez has left the building. She didn't light it on fire on her way out. Like, she, that's, that's kind of been burning for a bit, and she left. 
Um, so Aldana might get back to the title picture, but she, oof. it's going to take some work after this performance. This was bad. All right, co-main event. Boy, I went on for a while about that. I got to stop doing that, man. I got to stop wasting like 40 minutes on these main events. I mean, last week it was more to do with the Jason stuff than the fight itself, but I got to stop doing that. Co-main event. Charles Oliveira defeats Benil Daryush via TKO punches, 4-10 of the first. Um, got to eat a little crow here. I picked Daryush. Oliveira, man, he came out. He, he cleaned up some of his stuff for this fight. It was very obvious. So both men find a degree of success on the feet. They both landed. Um, Daryush couldn't seem to quite find the range for his left hand the way he likes to. Because he landed it a couple of times, but it seemed to be at odd distances, so it never quite had the oomph on it. Landed a couple of nice kicks. Um, Daryush got a takedown at one point. He, Oliveira tried to take down. Daryush countered. Oliveira pulled guard. Um, Daryush was very content to be in Oliveira's guard. Like, he's a good... If you just want to talk, like, pure jiu-jitsu credentials, Daryush actually has better pure jiu-jitsu than Oliveira does. So he didn't mind being in there and, you know, working body to head punches, kind of just working solid, not not spectacular, but solid ground and pound. Avoid some of the high guard plays, stopped any leg lock attacks, and Oliveira eventually got up. And Oliveira just kept his feet on the floor a little bit more, a lot less jumping stuff. Uh, pushed Dariush back to the... He fired a head kick. And Dariush only had one hand up. Now, they're open stances. Again, Dariush southpaw, Oliveira orthodox. And Dariush had his left hand up. So he blocked it. It was like the second time Oliveira threw the head kick. So he's catched it on the glove. But here's kind of the problem with a little... I'm sure this didn't feel good. But it... But what happens a little bit when you do this improperly, okay? Now, Benil Daryush could kill me. I'm under no illusions about this, but let me kind of express what happened here. If you only block a head kick with one hand, especially open stance. Especially open stance. I don't know why that is. I could speculate, but I'm not entirely sure. What happens is... Because the arm wants to go in towards the body, right? Your arms are st you're stronger, closer to your body. Our arms are kind of designed to bring things closer to us. Um, more so than pushing away. Which is kind of a weird thing when you look at where some people are stronger. But uh, that's kind of neither here nor there. Um... So if you get it going in towards the body, you have to you, know, you have to brace it to stop it. It doesn't want to brace naturally from the motion. Whereas if you take someone's arm and try to pull it away from their body, you do kind of naturally resist that a little bit. Um, so if you've only got the one hand up, you need to be really strongly braced. And there's more power because it's, it's going further distance. And distance gives you more momentum, more time to build power. And if it's only the one hand up there, you're probably not going to stop a kick 
cold with one hand, it's going to move your hand. And if it moves your hand into your head, you're moving, you're getting like maximum leverage. Because suddenly your very powerful force from your leg is hitting the very top end of the lever that is your body. You're hitting up there on the head, the whole thing will move. So you want both hands up there to frame better and to redirect a little bit of the force. And, and it also kind of just engages your shoulders a little bit more if, they're, if both your hands are up. It's kind of why head movement with both hands up is harder than head movement with both hands down. But Doyush only had the one hand up, so it hits into the kick hits into his hand, which then hits into his head, so it doesn't feel great. But the force also kind of moves the, the head and the top of that lever, and it rocks him backwards. Now, again, I'm sure it didn't feel great. And he starts retreating, throws back as he's doing so, because Daryush, if I may use the cliche, has that dog. But Oliveira kind of backs him towards the fence after this, hits him with a right hand, Daryush circles to his left along the fence, Oliveira taking not exactly the same, but if you look at the punch that Justin Gagey knocked out uh, Edson Barboza with, right, he backs him into the fence orthodox, then hits him with a little bit of a right. Um, Ola, Barboza circles along the fence to his own left. Gagey has no problem throwing now the right hand from essentially southpaw, using it as a lead hook to follow. That's what knocks Barboza out. It's kind of the same punch here. Oliveira doesn't knock Dariush out with it, but he hits him with it. Definitely kind of gets his attention and wobbles him. A follow-up punch kind of behind the ear knocks him forward. Dariush, man, if you want again, if you want to study in contrasts, Aldana doing nothing and losing. Dariush here, even though he was a little bit behind, I mean, he was winning that first round. Before before the finish, I had him winning that round. Even when he's in trouble here, he is still there. He is still after the fight. So he's hurt. He reaches for a takedown. Can't quite get it. Oliveira tries to roll, tries to take his back, because Oliveira's back takes are very good. Dariush knows he's trying to take the back. Inverts for a leg. Uh, Oliveira basically says, screw this. He spins to avoid the leg entanglement, gets on top in kind of half guard slash a, a ride position, and rather than engage in any more grappling with this guy, just starts dropping punches and lands enough to get the ref to step in. Um, heck of a performance from Oliveira, who now has the most finishes in UFC history at 20. Uh, the only guy who has more finishes than him in Zufa properties. So this is... We include Pride in this, because Zufa bought Pride at one point. So if we, if we do, like, Pride, WEC, Strikeforce, UFC, um, only one guy has more finishes combined across all those than Oliveira. Oliveira's at 20. The next guy is 21. And if you can... Tell you what, I'll give you half a second. Don't cheat. Take a guess about who has more finishes than Charles Oliveira. If we include, again, Pride, Strike Force, WEC, UFC. Someone in that, someone who has fought in a combination of those organizations has 21 finishes. Take a second, 
Pause if you want to. Don't cheat, but throw a guess out there. Because I know who it is. And for any of you that guessed the Croatian sensation Mirko Krokop, you win a cookie. Uh, Mirko meant 21 finishes across his across those properties. Uh, if you didn't see Prime Merc, uh, Krokop, man, you missed out. That man was a monster. My favorite stare down in MMA history. Uh, I can't remember if it's the first or second. I think it's the second fight between uh, Krokop and Vanderlei Silva. Might have been the first one, though. They're staring across from each other, and Vanderlei doing his bouncing, you know, aggressive thing, and Mirko just stoic. My favorite caption for this. Someone else put it up there. I forget who did this, so I apologize. But... They captioned this, Vanderlei looks like he's ready to kill someone. Krokop looks like he already did. Um, those two had murderous intensity between them. It was uh, a joy to watch. The, that second fight, man, between those two and the Pride, Mirko's run through the Pride Openweight uh, Grand Prix that he won. Uh, oof. That's, uh, that's fairy book stuff, man. To win it on his 32nd birthday, uh... He beat, did he beat Vanderlei and Josh Barnett in the same night to win that thing? I think that's why that went down. Sorry, uh, uh, I have I have deep affection for the best version of Mirko Krokop. Deep affection for it. Anyway, he's the only one with more than Oliveira at this point across across those four uh, promotions. Uh, Oliveira wants a title shot. You know. Dana White seems inclined to give it to him. Uh, after this, yeah, go for it. You know, I was I would not have been a fan of the immediate rematch given how the first fight went because Makashev, uh, he that was not a. Like, I hate to downplay Charles Oliveira, but that night between those two guys, um, that was relatively easy work for Makashev. I'm not saying Oliveira wins a rematch. Makashev is just a bad matchup for him, but do I think he could do better than he did? Yeah, probably. Almost certainly. Uh, but, you know, he needed, despite the long winning streak, you know, you lose not like that. You kind of need one. Um... Especially since they were fighting for the vacant belt, because if you'll recall, he'd been stripped of it for missing weight. Um, but this, to do that to Benil Daryush, who's a darn good fighter, yeah. I still would favor Makashev in a, in a rematch between them, but he earned it, man. He earned that second shot out of it. You gotta give it to him, even if you don't like his chances. Uh, gutted for Benil Daryush here. This is a guy who maybe should have had a title shot already. Won eight fights in a row at lightweight against increasing levels of opposition. Um, really unfortunate. I mean, I think what kills me about this is this is probably his last shot. This was probably his last one to be to get a title fight. He's 34 and at lightweight, you know... Again, man, 35 is kind of the cutoff. All right, welterweight and down, 35 and over. Two wins, both of them Tyron Woodley. One against comically overmatched uh, Darren Till, the other against 40-year-old Damian Maya. Um, 
It's uh, it's really unfortunate. It's just really unfortunate. I mean, he's a good fighter, man. He's a really good fighter. It's uh, it kind of sucks that look he had he had a couple of really unfortunate setbacks. Um, Kiesa choking him out was a pretty big setback. Dude, the Barboza loss. He was beating up Barboza. He kind of had his number, and then Barboza timed that flying knee. Following that up with a draw with Evan Dunham, and then Alexander Hernandez on short notice just kind of blitzing him. I mean, he hadn't lost sense until last night. But that's just... They're just setbacks that, you know, good fighters have them. But this was probably his last shot at earning a title chance. And that sucks. That just really sucks for him. But good fight. Oliveira got a ton of love. His first win in Canada, actually. I believe he was 0-4 in the country before this one. Uh, good performance out of Oliveira. Uh, let's see. Next up, Mike Malott kind of ran over Adam Fujit. Um, won the first, second round. Catches him. Couple of punches. Drops him. Grabs a guillotine. Rolls him out with it. Gets the tap. This was fundamentally designed as a showcase for Malott, who's still uh he's still got some maturing to do skills wise. But they wanted dude, the Canadians went undefeated last night for the record. So they had a good night. Uh predictable win for Malott. This was This was not a gimme. I don't mean to imply that. But it but to pretend it wasn't somewhat favorable matchmaking would be disingenuous. Uh, featherweights, Dan Ige and Nate Landward. Good fight. Um, Dan Ige wins a unanimous decision. 229-28, 130-27. I was 30-27, but I can see Landward taking the third. Um, Landward came out and was throwing a lot of front kicks, and Ige was dialed into them, landing some pretty good counters. Dropped him at the end of the first with a left hook. Dropped him at the end of the second. Uh, the, the one at the end of the second was pretty bad. Like, uh, credit to Nate Landwehr's chin. He recovered. But that could have been real bad if there was a little bit more time on the clock. Uh, third round, Ige, I hate, he doesn't give the round away in the traditional sense. But he knows he's up. And Landwehr is still coming after him. And part of what I think, I think Ige, by his own admission, got a little bit tired. And... Landwehr comes out looking to really push the pace, so Ige is kind of content to allow some of what Landwehr's doing to smother a bit of his offense. He's still landing punches. Like, I don't mean to say that he's just running away from the fight, but there's decisions he made earlier that he did not make later. And again, there's reasons for it, and he, still, and he clearly won. So I'm not knocking the guy. Uh, good win for Dan Ige. Uh, these two guys took lumps out of each other this this was my personal fight of the night, I think, more so than our official fight of the night, which we'll get to here. Um, a good showing, actually, from Nate Landwehr, who... He's still got some stuff to work on, but he had earned a step up in class, and Ige uh, represented that. Uh, but Landwehr, he was there. He was there for the fight. Was not out of place in there with Dan Ige, so... Uh, you know, a loss is never good, but going as competitively as he did with a guy as good as Dan Ige does speak well of his abilities. 
Opening the pay-per-view, Marc-Andre Barrio defeated Eric Anders via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Um, I think I gave Anders... I gave him uh, the second, I think. I don't object to Barrio getting it, getting the second. Um, these two came out, Barrio very early, because Anders fights Southpaw... Barrio was doing a variation on the old southpaw double attack, which is power leg, power hand. And if you're sneaky, you can throw them at basically the same time, and one of them's going to get through. So he throws a right... It's not purely a body kick, but it's not, it's not up to the... Call it a high kick, but it's not a head kick, you know? So he kind of throws it higher up on the body... As Anders is dealing with that, so about the time that kick lands, that power hand comes through, uh, hits Anders on the chin, drops him. Anders gets back up, though, and for a guy who's had cardio issues, Anders seems to have ironed that out in spades. He got back up, and he got after this. These two guys, um, they fought that first round at a crazy pace for middleweights. Uh, they were trading power punches. They were in the clinch. They were hockey fighting out there, man. Uh, this was... When this got fight of the night, I understood that entirely. Entirely understood that. Um, and I thought Anders had the second. He seemed to do a little bit better work, but these two just kept going. And then Barrio took over a little bit in the third. Um, just kind of a good old-fashioned brawl, two guys of about the same skill level, willing to engage in the same areas of the fight repeatedly. Um, yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time. Uh, no objection to them getting that bonus check. Again, personally, I might have leaned more towards Yige and Landwehr, but I don't think this was a bad call one iota. In fact, you could even argue that mine would be the wrong call there, but, again, it's personal. Much as the, you know, UFC bonuses are, it's just kind of who Dana favors. Anyway, that was the pay-per-view. Not great on paper. We got a decent fight. We got a decent main card out of it in practice. Again, Barrio and Anders, good fight. Ige and Landwehr, good fight. Malat and Fugit was what it was. Oliveira and Dariush was, you know, four minutes of mayhem, kind of. Main event was a disappointment. Um, it just wasn't an engaging fight. You know, I, I'll give credit to the Canadian fans again. Um, apparently, there were a lot of them leaving once we got through like the third round. Like, okay, we know what's going on here. But they, there were big stretches of this fight that, with a different crowd, particularly say a Vegas crowd, would have been booed out of the building just relentlessly just showered in booze because it wasn't very good. So the Canadian crowd did not engage in that, and they could have. And you know what? If they they could have, and again, there's stretches of time in that fight when it would have been justified. I'm never the biggest fan of booing fights because I think it gets overused. I think it's a lot of you know, I don't, this isn't how I want you to fight, do better, when stuff is happening. At the same time, again, I'm not shy about coming out here and saying I thought a fight sucked. And if a fight is sucking, 
I don't object to a crowd expressing their displeasure. And they would have been within their rights at a few different times for that main event because it was not very engaging. All right, as for the prelims, oh, Chris Curtis, man, I feel so bad for that guy. Um, his fight with Nasruddin Imavov is called off 304 of the second, ruled a no contest due to a clash of heads. So let me start with um, let me start with the positive here. Um, both guys looked pretty good. Imavov looked real sharp. Now he's had cardio issues in the past, and this is one of the reasons I feel bad for Curtis. Like, did Imavov win the first round? Yes. He landed some pretty good punches. He had some he had some slightly awkward timing that Curtis was um trying to pick up on. With some of his strikes, fast hands from Imavov, uh, faster than usual, actually. So, again, good stuff from Imavov there. Imavov is the first guy that t- uh, to take Chris Curtis down in the UFC. He kind of fainted his way in close. Curtis went to roll with a punch he thought was coming. Imavov tied up and got to his back, standing, and then kind of rode him down. Um... So, and then a lot of clinch work from Imavov after that. Again, won the round pretty clearly. Second round. by the At the time of the foul, so again, 3-0-4, Imavov, I think, was ahead slightly in the second, but some of Curtis's body work was starting to pay off. Imavov was slowing, and Curtis seemed to, find, to be kind of finding himself, finding the rhythm, which is not uncommon for him. He, he tends to be a bit of a slower starter in terms of making his reads, getting out, figuring out what he wants to do. And so who's to say how this fight would have gone? Imovov might well have still won this. I'm not saying Imovov was saved or that, you know, Curtis wanted out. He was starting to find some success. But they get in close, and as they're kind of coming in, both guys throw in the power hand, opposite stances, and neither one really lands, but um, Imovov kind of... In closing distance, and Curtis kind of clips him with a forearm to the side of the head and brings him in a little bit closer. Bang heads. Opens up a bad cut just under the eye, under the right eyebrow of Chris Curtis. Um, there's a photos of it. Uh, Sean Strickland put a picture online, and then that kind of got spread around. 40-something stitches to close. Even if Curtis had been able to see, which was what stopped the fight. Like, initially, he's like, you know, he gets fouled, wants to deal with the, you know, get the blood out of my eye. So they give him a towel. The doctor comes in to look at him. And he says, I'm, you know, I'm struggling to see out of this eye. And the referee hears this, Jason Herzog. And Herzog goes to say, if if you can't see, you can't fight, and goes to wave it off. And Curtis begs him, like, no, 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 please don't wave it off. Just give me a minute. Let me see if this... Let me see if this works itself out. And referee's like, okay, you know, I can... The ruling for this is different. I don't know what it is specifically anymore, but the rule for, you know, if you get fouled like this is not, you have five minutes. Like, that's that's the rule for low blows. That's not the rule for all fouls. Um... And I don't think, and this also, again, this also varies by uh, commission, so. I'm going to assume that the referee, and uh, Herzog, knew the appropriate 
steps to take. Like he that he was within his, uh, he was within the rules and doing his job. I'll give him that credit at the moment because he's generally a pretty solid ref. I've had my issues with him once or twice, but generally a pretty solid ref. And Curtis says, "Please give me a minute." And and hers, I'll give you what I can. So he again tries to clear the blood out of his eye. The doctor comes over to check on him, and he says, "You know, doctor checks on that right eye and says, yeah, I still, I still can't see out of it. It's too blurry. I can't make anything out.' And at that point, the referee has to call it. Um, now the point here was even if he could see, that was a bad enough cut in a bad spot that that might have stopped the fight anyway like that was again it's not just that it's a long cut and again 40 stitches is pretty long it's under the eyebrow and that's where things get really gnarly um so that might that the cut itself might have been a fight stopper irrespective of vision issues so that sucks for both guys. Another example of the terrible decision to have show and win uh, money be split. Both guys only make half as much money. Um, again, man, I feel so bad for Chris Curtis. Second fight in a row when headbutts um, cost him, cost him big time. Um, I feel bad for Imovov too, man. He again, he was looking pretty darn good um, up until the foul. Like, I had him up. Won the first. I had him ahead in the second to that point. Not by a huge amount, but I had him ahead. Uh, Sucks for him. Because a win over a guy like Chris Curtis is... That's nothing to sneeze at. Beating Curtis is hard to do. Uh, Sucks for Curtis. He was was finally starting to kind of find the fight, I think. It was kind of making it work for him. And then to, you know, for two fights in a row, have headbutts be the cause of... Uh, things going wrong for you is uh, it just sucks. Um, so again, there's a picture of that after the. There's some people who have kind of done the well. He was losing and he wanted out. Um, no. Look, I don't mind examining fighters' behavior post foul to see what's going on, right? I don't mind doing that as long as we're doing it in good faith. The immediate assumption that any time a fighter has a problem after being fouled is somehow operating uh, in bad faith or just trying to weasel out of a fight, I find that annoying because it's very much not true most of the time. You know, I've seen fighters who I thought were looking for a way out. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I've seen that. I Chris Curtis did not strike me as a fighter trying to get out of a tough situation here. Again, was he behind? Yes. Was he overwhelmed and out of the fight? Not at all. Um, he could have come back to win that round. That round, again, Imov- I had Imovov ahead, but it was still in play. He could have won the third. He could have knocked Imovov out if they kept... Like, there's a lot of stuff that could have happened. Either guy could have still won that fight. Uh some, because Sean Strickland posted the photo, somebody asked him, you know, what do you think about the fight being waved off and whatnot? Or, you know, uh, Curtis saying he couldn't see. And he said something kind of interesting. Because Sean Strickland is, again, he's got his persona. And 
when you get him beyond the persona, and I think what he answered here, again, his answer here was quite telling. He said, as a, I can't remember the exact quote, but I'm going to summarize. Like, as a guy who spent 15 minutes getting his head bounced off the canvas by Usman, because when Sean Strickland fought at welterweight, he did fight Kamaru Usman. And Usman, this was on Usman's meteoric rise. Like, Usman won that fight, clearly. But as a guy who got his head bounced off the canvas by Usman for 15 minutes, with a broken orbital floor, I would never allow a fighter to fight who said they couldn't see. And, again, like, Sean Strickland is, whatever you think of the persona, whatever you think of the sound bites, like, that's not a guy who suffers malingering, right? Like, that's, that's not a guy who's going to make excuses. If he if he thinks you're you're looking for a way out, he'll call he'll call it that way. And he didn't just say this in defense of Chris Curtis, because he could have. He framed it as this happened to me. As a result of this experience, I understand that any fighter who says I can't see should not be allowed to fight. There's a reason that's the stand. There's a reason that's a rule. So, I'm not here to throw stones at Chris Curtis. Um, unfortunate way that fight went. Uh, women's flyweight Jasmine Jazdavisi is pulling a significant upset. Defeats Miranda Maverick via unanimous decision. 29-28 across the boards. Um, Maverick had a real... You know... Miranda Maverick has shown bits and pieces of really good... Of some serious skill. But she has not developed uh, a whole lot. I mean, look, I thought I thought she beat Macy Barber. I thought that was a bad decision. But Blanchfield beat her fair and square. Jez Davisius beat her fair and square here, too. Um, you know, look, she's young. She's 25. Um, but... There's some development that needs to happen here, and I think we need to start seeing it. Because if if that doesn't happen, uh, more of this is going to. Um, Jazz Davisi just got after the fight a little bit more, a little bit more forward pressure. Um, Maverick tried some takedowns, but got countered every time, and Jazz Davisi just got on top, and Maverick just didn't have much off of her back. Uh, just more activity, more aggression, more effective work from Jazz Davisius overall. Um, I think Maverick had the first, but after that, uh, Jazz Davisius kind of started rolling downhill. Uh, Bantamweights, this one. Eamon Zahabi knocks out Orichi Long in the first round, 104 with punches. Um, Orichi Long throws a leg kick, and Zahabi throws a bit of a right hand to counter, more of a distraction. His left hand reaches down to catch the kick, and he kind of gets behind the knee. So you're now in kind of a knee tap position with one hand out posting, one hand behind the knee. Uh, Orichi Long reaches down with his right hand to address the hand grabbing his knee, leaving open that side of his head. So Zahabi lets go of the leg and comes up with a left hook. That just ends Orichi Long's night. Uh, 
Yeah, Zahabi is... That's a feast or famine kind of fighter. He either gets a pretty brutal finish, or his fights are just utterly uninteresting. There's not a lot of in-between with him. Uh, featherweight, another upset here. Kyle Nelson defeated Blake Builder via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Builder struggled with the reach of Nelson. Um, just longer guy, a little bit more committed to the work. A lot of movement from Builder, but couldn't do much off of it. Uh, Nelson's jab gave him a lot of problems. Uh, much needed win for Nelson. He was like, I think, 1-4 in, in the UFC. Um... Yeah. All right. Other upset. Um, so Steven Urseg steps in on short notice to replace uh, Matt Schnell. He fights the ranked David Dvorak and beats him. Two 29-28s, one 30-27, unanimous decision. Um, Dvorak was doing pretty good in the first and then gets cracked with a right hand and dropped with a head kick. Uh, was that the second? That was the second round, sorry. First round, I kind of thought Dvorak won. It was a, it was a competitive round. I believe the second round when we had the drop, and then Ursig just kind of kept rolling on him from there. Dvorak's good, but he kind of struggles once things don't go his way. And I don't quite know. He doesn't adjust well after things go against him, and he's got to fix that. Uh, heck of a debut for Urseg to come in, beat a ranked opponent. Looks like he belonged there. Looked the part of a top flyweight. Curious to see what he can do with a full camp. Uh, heck of a debut. Heck of a debut. And kicking everything off, Diana Belbicha defeated Maria Oliveira of unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Um, this felt like amateur hour, if I'm being honest. Um, a lot of... Set, come together, throw a three-strike combination, reset, repeat. Jack Slack made the observation that a lot of lower-level women's MMA looks like they're just working pads. You can see them, like, Padman calls out combination. They step in, pop, 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 pop. They step back and they reset. A lot of that in this fight. Uh, not impressed with pretty much anything out of this one. But maybe I'm being overly harsh. I, I don't pretend what they do is easy, but I'm not going to pretend that I didn't see what I saw. Uh, you, that was the whole card. So your bonuses, I mentioned already, fight of the night was Barrio and Anders. Performances went to Charles Oliveira, Mike Malott, and Steven Erseg. Uh, Surprised they didn't give one to Zahabi? I would have gone Zahabi over Malott, personally. But... Um, understandable. Uh, I don't think any of those are wrong. So if you want my full uh, report as well as round-by-round round scoring, you can find that over in the MMAZona411mania.com. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Did not expect that to take as long as it did, but, well, here we are. So let's move on, trying to pick up the pace a little bit here. Saturday, we will have UFC on ESPN 47. Main event. Good main event. Uh, Marvin Vittori versus Jared Cannonier. Hard for either guy to earn another crack at Adesanya, especially Vittori, who's lost to him twice. Um, 
Vittori's coming off the win over Roman Delidze. Before that, he had the loss to Whitaker. Whitaker just kind of beat him everywhere. Um, Cannoneer, what did he do recently? I thought he lost that Strickland fight. I'm sorry. That's what I saw. That's how I scored it. Um, lost his title fight before that. This is a tough one. See, Marvin Vittori is... He's a very fundamental kind of meat and potatoes fighter. He gets by on a couple of things. One, he's okay everywhere. There's not really a phase of fighting that he's bad at, which is a good thing. Two, he's got a head like a cinder block. Like, I don't know that he's ever been knocked down. Hang on, I'm going to confirm that. Um, because, again, he's had some setbacks, but, um, because uh, I believe he knocked Hermanson down when they fought. Let me double check that. Yeah, yeah, he's credited with a knockdown. Yeah, that's... The guy who did it is how that's listed, not the guy who was. Um, so he knocked down Hermanson. Yeah, no one in the UFC has knocked him down, and that includes um, Cesar Mutanche Ferreira, who was a mutant, Israel Adesanya twice, Omar Yakhmedov, who... That man would throw. Um, Kevin Holland, who's got some pop. And Paulo Costa at light heavyweight. Paulo Costa hit him flush repeatedly. Couldn't knock him down. Whitaker couldn't knock him down. Uh, that dude just, again, head like a cinder block. Will not go down. Now, Jared Cannonier hits really, really hard. Uh, so that, that is in play for that record, for that to be changed, but I wouldn't count on being able to knock out Marvin Vittori. Not saying you can't do it. In fact, has he been stopped? I think he's been stopped with strikes before. Maybe early? No. Dude, he's never been finished. Any kind of finished. Um, <sighs> And again, he's fought some he's fought some dogs. And so there's that. It's five rounds. Both guys have shown a capacity to go five rounds. I my hunch is Vittori grinds something out. But and again, here's the, here's kind of the big caveat here. Cannonier doesn't just have really good power. He's actually pretty good about timing you. And Vittori is somewhat predictable in his offense. And I don't mean that I don't mean that to sound like some giant negative, but there's not a lot of um mystery to Vittori's game. It's still really hard to beat him because hey, it turns out being good having good fundamentals pretty much everywhere makes you very hard to beat. 
So I'm gonna lean towards Vittori, but I don't know, man. If he can't get some kind of control, probably against the fence. If he can't really control Cannoneer in the clinch, he's gonna have a hard time. So again, I'm gonna lean towards Vittori. If this were three rounds, I might lean Cannoneer. But over five, Vittori's gone five more than Cannoneer. And in some fairly high-paced fights, too. So I'm going to lean towards Vittori. Pretty good fight. Uh, lightweight, Armin Saryukin and Joaquim Silva. Good fight. Um, Silva... He's been up and down. There was a time when I thought he had some potential... Um, his UFC debut, and then the fight after. So that was 2015 and 2016, but... He's had a very... He's just not been a very active fighter. And he debuted for the UFC in 2015. And he has a whopping, what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... He has eight fights in the UFC in... You know, eight years... Yeah, 1 in 15, 1 in 16, 1 in 17, 2 in 18, 1 in 19, none in 2020, 1 in 21, 1 in October of last year. He's just not active enough. Um, Saryuki, and he's coming off the a win over Demir Ishmagulov. Uh, that was... was a fair win for him. Uh, he lost to Mateusz Gamrot before that. That was a fun fight. Um, yeah, his only losses in the UFC are to Islam Makashev and Mateusz Gamrot. Uh, I need, uh, I'm at the point where I kind of need a good reason to pick against Saryukian. I don't think Silva offers one. Uh, middleweight Armin Petrosian and Christian Leroy Duncan. Feels like, let me make sure, sure I am remembering Mr. Petrosian. Properly, this is okay. There's a couple of there's a couple of these guys that have similar names. They might even have the same name, but they're different weight classes and different fighters, and I sometimes confuse them. So Armin Petrosian, um, coming off a win over he's two and one, wins over uh, that Gregory Rodriguez fight was pretty darn good. He lost to Kyle Bahalio. Uh, yeah, Bahalio, who is actually very good. Um, yeah, he was supposed to fight Andre Petrosky here. Petrosky fell out. Uh, Duncan steps in on relatively short notice. Duncan actually looked pretty darn good in his UFC debut. Um, he's undefeated, and he's a... He beat Dusko Todorovic. There was a knee injury to Todorovic, but... That was partially caused by what Duncan was doing. He was looking good. He's a big guy. Yeah, he's 6'2". Um, and middleweight has some big guys in it, but... He... Something about that last fight, man. Uh, he just looked enormous. Does he normally fight at welterweight? Is that the thing? I wish to confirm... Earlier on the card. No, that was 
Yeah, I don't know. I I just remember him because he was fighting against Todorovic, who was not a small man, and Duncan looked very big next to him. Um, that's a heck of a replacement, actually. That's a, I might lean Duncan actually. That's a that's a close one. I would have favored Petrovsky over Petrosian. Um, I think Petrosian might struggle with the wrestling. We're going to get a lot more striking out of these two. Again, there's a lot of unknowns between the two of them. I am actually going to lean towards Duncan just a bit. But yeah, I'm prepared to be very wrong on that one. Uh, featherweights, Pat Sabatini is back. Coming off that loss to... Dude, Damon Jackson put a beating on him. Uh, that ended his UFC run. He, he pretty talented grappler. He's fighting Lucas Almeida. Um, Almeida is 14-1 and one overall. Won his UFC debut a little over a year ago. He beat Mike Trezano. Since then, he's had fights fall out with Zubaira Tukhugov, Andre Feely, and Hakeem Dawadu. Jeez. Like, those are tough fights he's been signing up for. Um, he lost to Daniel... He's only lost to Daniel Zellhuber. I'm actually going to lean towards Almeida here a little bit. I don't dislike Sabatini, but... I think his game has kind if he ha, if he doesn't show new wrinkles to his game people have at this point I think enough tape on him to have a pretty good game plan. Uh lightweight Manuel Torres and Nicolas Mata. Uh Torres 13 and 2. He's a big guy actually. He's 5'10 and we're talking um lightweight. So he he's a big lightweight. He beat Frank Camacho uh, his last time out. That was his UFC debut. Um, Mata, 13-4, and 1-1 one and one in the UFC. Uh, oh, yeah, he got he got beat up by Jim Miller. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, rebounded by beating Cameron Van Camp. I'm actually going to go with Torres here. Um, I think that, I think the, the physical dimensions are going to give Mata problems. Uh, pretty good fight here, actually. At welterweight. Wait, sorry. Um, different bout order. So bantamweight fight between Hani Barcelos and Miles Johns. Um, I like Hani Barcelos. Unfortunately, he's in a bad spot here. One and four in his last. Uh, one and three in his last four. Excuse me. Uh, lost to Timur Valiev. Tough fight. Victor Henry surprised a lot of people by beating him, me included. Beat Trevin Jones. Unfortunately, his last fight, he ran into Umar Nurmagomedov, who is a boulder rolling downhill at the moment. Good grief. Stay out of that man's way. Uh, Umar's probably going to be champion. <laughs> um, Johns, by contrast. He's been with the UFC for a little bit. Um, won more than he's lost, but he's lost to Mario Bautista and John Castaneda. Coming off a win over Vince Morales. If Barcelos isn't over the hill, and he's 36, so that time might be coming. If Barcelos isn't over the hill, he, he should win this. 
this feels like a test for this is a test for both guys. If Johns is coming up, he should he'll be able to win. If Barcelos is really going down, he'll lose. So we'll see who's going which direction here. Uh, welterweights, Nicholas Dalby and Muslim Salikov, good fight. Um, Dalby, two-fight winning streak, uh, Claudio Silva and Warley Alves. He's done pretty well for himself since returning to the UFC. Uh, only lost to Tim Means. That was a pretty good fight. Um, Salikov, he stopped Andre Fialho last time uh, before that Li Jing Liang stopped him. Uh, this will be a fun one. My hunch is they start out striking, and if Salikov can't find a lot of success, Dolby, or if he can't find a lot of success in, like, stopping Dolby and keeping him at bay, Dolby will clinch up and out-wrestle him. I'm going to lean toward... I think Dolby will be a little bit... If Dolby's smart, he'll try to out-wrestle him. Problem is, Dolby can be sucked into kind of these more fun brawls. I'm going to go Salikov, but I don't feel terribly good about it. Um, Flyweights, Jimmy Sit, uh, Flick, excuse me, and Alessandro Costa. Flick back? I, he, if you'll recall, he retired after his last UFC fight. That was, um, he lost to Charles Johnson. No, sorry, he retired after beating Cody Durden um, in 2020. Came back, um, again, he had a weird kind of journey to coming back. Lost to Charles Johnson um, January of this year. We'll see if he's really back. Uh, Costa, 12-3, and three, lost his UFC debut to Amir Albazi. That broke a pretty decent winning streak for him, though. Um, I am going to lean towards Flick. But if he's not all the way back and all the way dialed in, Costa might have something for him. Uh, bantamweights, Kyung Ho Kong and Christian Quinones. Uh, Mr. Perfect, uh, Kyung Ho Kong, beat Dana Batgari his last time out. That was a pretty good win. Um, that was June of last year, so again, another guy had been out about a year. Um, Quinones... See, 18 and 3. I believe he's fought in the UFC. Yes, he had a successful debut over Khalid Taha. A pretty good winning streak. What, five? Yeah, five. Not a bad fight. I wonder if Kong's not on the wrong side of things. I keep saying Kong like it's K one. It's K A N G, but it's slightly different. Slightly wider A. King Ho Kong. Um, it's a tough one. Again, Kong's a little bit more established. It's actually a pretty decent step up for Quinones. Um, I'm going to pick Kong, but... Again, if he's going the wrong way, Quinones will take this from him. Let's see, next up we have Zhalgas Jumagulov and Felipe Bunes. Bunes? Where's that gentleman from? Brazil. Going with Bunez until I hear otherwise. Apologies if I'm doing it wrong. Uh, Zhumagulov. Uh, poor guy had that. He was supposed to fight 
One, he's on a rough stretch. He's lost a couple of split decisions that he maybe should have won. Um, he had that fight with um, uh, Rafael Estevam pull out after Estevam didn't even try to weigh in uh, back in April. So, yeah, again, his UFC record is 1-5. and five. Lost a decision to Holly and Paiva. Paiva missed weight for that, actually. Um, lost to Amir Albazi, beat Jerome Rivera, got stopped by Manel Kopp. Lost a split decision to Jeff Molina. I kind of thought he won. Lost a split decision to Charles Johnson. I definitely thought... I, I, I recall scoring that one for Zuma Gulov. I feel bad for him. Again, some of those split decisions... Um, the Molina fight... Again, you could make the argument either way. I scored it for Zuma Gulov, but I, don't work, but I wasn't up in arms over it. The Johnson one, I did not feel great about that not going his way. Um, anyway, Bunez is 13-6. and six. Uh, UFC debut? Yes, indeedy. Two-fight winning streak. If Zumagulov can't win this one, they're probably going to cut him. I'm going to pick him here sentimentally. That guy's had some bad breaks. Let's see, uh, women's flyweight, uh, Teresa Bleda and Gabriela Fernandez. What we got here? Bleda had a successful... Uh, she fought UFC... Um, lost her UFC debut to Natalia Silva. You know, as far as losses go, that one might age pretty... That might that one might wage, uh, age okay. Silva's... Wait, didn't Silva just get beat or did she just do the beating? Uh, yeah, when she, uh, she beat up on Victoria Leonardo... Not too long ago. So again, that that loss might age okay. Um, Fernandez, uh, oh and one in the UFC, lost to Jasmine Jazdavicius in her UFC debut, February of this year. Um, I'll lean towards Blada because why not? Uh, let's see. Ronnie Lawrence will be a bantamweight here. Ronnie Lawrence and Daniel Argueta. You know, for a lower-end-ish bantamweight fight, this is not bad. Uh, Lawrence is 2-1 and one in the UFC. Coming off of that loss, yeah, he ran into Saeed Yukub Hakramanov. Let's say this again. The fact that I can just look at that guy's name and know how to pronounce it, I don't know if I should be impressed or disgusted with myself. <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen the name before. I've covered some of his fights, so I've heard it, but some of these fighters, man, like, I have absorbed a weird amount of... Uh, who was it I was talking with about this the other day? So, uh, yeah, someone I went to high school with. I'm in the military now. Like, uh, was stationed in Poland for a while. And was kind of doing the, you know, the Polish alphabet thing. Like, wait a minute, none of this makes sense. Which is kind of, you know, fair. And I kind of said, no, that's, and I sort of phonetically spelled out my approximation of it. And got back a, you know, wow, that's not actually half bad. How'd you do that? <laughs> I've watched a lot of Polish fighters, and I've watched some KSW in my time. And I've just seen enough of them and kind of can roughly intuit some of the stuff that I can, that I see. And again, so, now, Saidukub Kakramanov is... Kazakh? No, Uzbek. 
But, yeah, there's some of those fighters from that part of the world that I can look at their names and like, eh, I feel... I'm not saying I'm getting all the accents right, but I don't feel too bad taking the, uh, taking a stab at that one. Um, Argueda moving down to, uh, to bantamweight for this. He's normally a flyweight. Um, he's one and one in the UFC. Lost to Damon Jackson. Beat uh, Nick Agu uh, Aguirre. Had a canceled fight with um, Isaac Dolgarian. I'm okay picking Lawrence here. Uh, I kind of like Ronnie Lawrence. And I'm not sure what Alguida will look like at bantamweight. And kicking everything off, we have Modestus Bukowskis and Zach Pauga. Uh, Mr. Bukowskis. Isn't he coming back off an injury? No, no, Khalil Roundtree's the one who injured him. Oh, he got cut after that. Yeah, won a couple of Cage Warriors. Beat Tyson Pedro in his comeback fight to the UFC. Yeah, Roundtree did a number on his knee, man. That was nasty. Um, So, yeah, he's back. Going for a second win in the UFC. Pauga. Uh, lost his... You know, he fought... Yeah, yeah, he... Um, he was in the finale of that stupid season of Tough when he lost to Mohamed Usman. And again, the next time you saw the knocks on your door, fighters, I just want you to pull up a picture of Mohamed Usman and laugh at them and then throw them out the door. Uh, he beat Jordan Wright back in February. <sighs> That's actually kind of a tough one. Wait a minute, that was at heavyweight, the uh, Mohamed Usman fight, right? Double check that. Because he might technically be undefeated at light heavyweight. Um, you are... Not actually helpful information. Click over here. Yeah, that was at heavyweight. So Paruga technically undefeated at light heavyweight. Huh. Wins over Marcus. Um. Because yeah, the fight with Jordan Wright was back at 205. Double check that. Yeah, that was at light heavyweight. Um. That's actually a tougher fight than you might think. All right, I'm going to lean towards Bukowskis. Here's the thing about this. Pauga has seven professional fights. There's room for him to grow by leaps and bounds between fights here when you're that early in your development. I'm going to lean towards Bukowskis because he's more seasoned, and that does matter in these situations. So I'm going to lean towards Bukowskis. But that's where we are with uh, that card. So again, a lot of fights. And I'll be covering them all Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Stop by, say hello. I appreciate it. All right. So let's move on. We'll talk about a couple of news items very briefly. So the PFL had a couple of big upsets, actually. Uh, they had an event Friday. And... The big, the big talking point. Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bash the PFL here. They had a, 
Dude, the amount of drug test failures they had after those last couple of events just crippled their season. Just crippled it. They had, what, like five guys fail drug tests? How do you fail commission testing, guys? It's not... There's a long-standing joke about commission testing. It's not actually a drug test. It's an IQ test. Because you know when you're going to be tested. And you should know the half-life of the stuff you're putting in your body. So all you have to do is go back, call it two weeks. I forget what it is. But if you're curious, plenty of people will talk about this on YouTube. Um, uh, the guy, Derek, from More Plates, More Dates. Happy to talk about this and kind of the, the thresholds here and when they fall out. So I'll say two weeks for the sake of argument. Because I can't remember off the top of my head and I'm not going to look it up. All that means is you stop taking anything 15 days before your test. And it will be out of your system hunky-dory. Somehow, these people can't put on their Google Calendar or program into their phone on this day, stop taking drugs. And for the record, for anyone out there who thinks I'm taking a moral stance, I'd rather have a cleaner sport. I'd rather we have a more reasonable relationship with different kinds of performance-enhancing drugs. But i got to live in the world we're in. Um, Regional-level MMA? Uh, rampant. Rampant PED use. Deal with it. Uh, so that season's kind of a wash. But the interesting thing to me was Deontay Wilder was there. And they actually pulled him onto the broadcast at one point. He stood cage side with the other commentary team, and they talked. And, you know, it's Wilder kind of testing his options. And the notion of Deontay Wilder versus Francis Ngannou was naturally brought up because Francis fights for them. So here's kind of the long and the short of this. Wilder said he's not opposed to two fights with Francis Ngannou. First one in boxing, second one in MMA. Can I be honest with you guys? I don't hate that. Would I fit? Here's the thing. Um, Francis Ngannou against Tyson Fury, it might sell, but that's not a very competitive fight. Francis Ngannou against AJ Anthony Joshua. Not a terribly competitive fight. Again, could Francis connect and maybe hurt them? Yes. But boxing is not MMA. Deontay Wilder has long been noted for his lack of technical acumen in boxing. He started late. He didn't become a boxer. I don't mean a professional. I mean, he didn't box until he was 19. I've said this before, I guarantee you, when he walked into that boxing gym for the first time as a 19-year-old, there were people in that gym who had been boxing since they were nine, who had a decade of development on him. Wilder became successful, because not because of his technical acumen, which is, it's not non-existent, I'm not going to be stupid here and insulting, but he's not the most technically sophisticated fighter. He just has serious stopping power. 
I mean, serious stopping power. And he kind of has leaned on that, and he's built kind of a game around it. But his lack of technical ability is what would make a boxing match with Francis Ngannou interesting, because both guys hit like freaking trucks. Then you put them in the cage. Now, granted, you put them in the cage. My hunch is Ngannou comes out, calf kicks him twice, and Wilder goes no moss. Because Wilder does not have very large legs. I mean, not quite Tyson Fury's skinny legs, but Wilder carries more of his musculature through his shoulders and back. But that's kind of the interesting thing. He's like, dude, Wilder hits... Again, those guys, if you need someone to stop a charging wild animal at you, put Francis Ngannou or Deontay Wilder in there let him throw a punch. And that's kind of the interesting thing because Wilder in four-ounce gloves has the potential to be terrifying. So would I favor Francis in an MMA fight? Oh, yeah. Dude, Francis, Francis, as soon as he takes him down, would be it. Um, if you want to know, like, size matters. But if you want an example of the importance of technique, there's a little video out of um, Tyson Fury kind of rolling around with Nate Diaz. And Nate out-wrestles him. There should be a giant warning sign to the people going, yeah, Tyson Fury's totally going to come to the UFC for a fraction of what he normally makes and fight John Jones in the cage. Buddy, if Nate Diaz is doing that to you, what in the world do you think John Jones is going to do to you? And Tyson Fury is not stupid. He knows that. He's not going to do that. But, again, Wilder might... Not because he's stupid, but because, one, he hits really hard, and two, another fight with Ngannou, a two-fight deal with Ngannou and Wilder, one boxing, one MMA. Again, is that my favorite thing in the world? No, it's not. I don't hate it, though. Again, this is not finalized, this is kind of being spitballed, but I do not hate that idea. All I'm saying. I don't hate it. Uh, Alright, as far as news, what else do I have here? Uh, I'll be very brief with this, I think. So, uh, Chris Weidman has booked his return UFC fight. The last time we saw him was when he broke his shin horribly, throwing a leg kick at uh, Uriah Hall, and he hadn't been seen since. I mean, he, he returned, he did some grappling recently. He had some complications in the healing process, so, you know, that poor guy has had a lot of injuries. But he's booked his return fight. It will be for UFC 292, and he will fight Brad Tavares. I can live with that. I think Weidman's on the wrong side of it. Like, he's clearly still got some gameness to him, but injuries, time off, mileage, abuse. Like, that guy's taking some physical abuse. Um, I might favor him over Tavares, but... We're probably a lot closer to the end of Weidman in the UFC than most people might realize. All right. Um, is there any other news? Do I care about Conor McGregor? All right, 20 seconds. So Conor McGregor was at one of the NBA Finals games. Um, this was between the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. And did kind of a halftime doohickey where he went out and fought the mascot. 
So Connor swings the left hand, hits the mascot in the head. Bear in mind, the mascot hits the costume in the head. The mascot falls over because the mascot knows what's up. And Connor, off script, goes over and drops the old uh, the old coffin nail punch. It's not quite a Dan Henderson flying through the air, but... Uh, and apparently that second punch was, um, again, off script and clipped the gentleman in the costume hard, uh, badly enough that, uh, look, he went to the, he got checked out at a hospital. They gave him some pain pills and said, go away. But dude, Connor, my man, you just can't get out of your own way, can you? You know... I haven't watched it yet, but apparently uh, I have a friend who did. The uh, McGregor documentary on Netflix. His big takeaway from it, one of them, was the profound difference between Connor, what Connor says he wants to do and be, and what his actions are. And you know what? Fair enough. Again, I haven't watched the documentary, so I can't comment, but I don't think we're going to see Connor versus Chandler at this point. I don't know what we're doing. I do not know what we're doing. So, again, a brief thing on that. I don't expect there to be, like, criminal repercussions or anything, but that'll be the last time someone invites him to do something like that. Just throwing that out there. All right, let me check Twitter one more time real quick, and uh, if nothing new has come up, we will do plugs and get out of here on an episode I did not expect to be this long. I apologize, guys. I figured not this long. So, Twitter, here we go. All right, nope, nothing new. So, plugs, what do I got this week? Um, again, on the coverage side of things, MLW Fusion will be up on Thursday because they're on Fusion again, and I will cover that, but I couldn't cover Underground logistical reasons uh wwe smackdown on friday uh, per usual ufc event on saturday per usual okay now as of this recording i have not been asked to cover anything on monday or wednesday but that might change i am kind of permanently on deck so yeah i'm looking for that on my other podcasting front, Damn You Hollywood, this Tuesday, we go live at 9 p.m. Eastern. We will be reviewing Transformers Rise of the Beasts. That will be myself, Mark Radulich, Jason, I want to say? Yeah, Jason Teasley. So the three of us will be talking about Transformers. Haven't seen it yet, but I will see it before we review it because I couldn't very well review it if I hadn't seen it. Um, last week we reviewed on Damn You Hollywood Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So if you want our thoughts on that, uh, give that a listen. That's myself, Mark Radulich, and Alexis Haina. We have a pretty good discussion about it. All right, that is it for me. Next week we will be back here, same time, same channel, to review UFC on ESPN 47 and... We will preview UFC on ABC5, headlined by Josh Emmett versus Ilya Teporia. Somebody's gonna die. Uh, how's the rest of that card, actually? I don't care about Barber and Hebus. 
Gregory Rodriguez and Dennis Tolulin's not bad. Actually, Brendan Allen and Bruno Silva's pretty good. Um, okay, it's, it's another long card. Hang on. As has been custom, let's count the fights, shall we? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, yeah, fourteen. Oy. Um, what else have we got? Ooh, Tatsuro Tyra. Why is Tatsuro Tyra curtain jerking the whole thing? That man is good. I know it's because he's a flyweight and the UFC hates flyweights. But give that man a higher profile. Seriously, he's very good. All right, full preview next week. See you all then. Until then, thank you all very, very much as always. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.